Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This is part two of our episode on the Royal Philanthropic Vaccine Expedition, which was Spain's effort to deliver the smallpox vaccine to its colonies in the Americas and the Caribbean and to implement widespread vaccine programs in those colonies once the vaccine had been introduced. This expedition involved a human chain of boys from foundling homes and charity hospitals who acted as living hosts for this vaccine. Last time, we covered the basics of smallpox and how the vaccine made its way to other parts of the world and sort of the the setup for Spain embarking on this. Today, we are going to talk about the expedition itself, which was authorized by Royal Charter on June 28, 1803. And as we noted in part one, the method of vaccinating people for smallpox in the early 19th century was a little gruesome. And most of that detail is in the earlier episode, but like you just got to refer back to it in talking about this. So just note. (laughs) It will be in this episode as well. Uh, Although Guatemalan Dr. Jose Flores had advised the Council of the Indies on how to approach this expedition, the person who was actually tasked with carrying it out was expedition director Francisco Javier de Balmas y Berenguer. Balmas was a physician and army surgeon who had been born in 1753. He had been named honorary surgeon of the chamber of King Carlos IV of Spain, and he had gone on earlier voyages to the Americas to study and collect medicinal plants. So he already had some experience at sea and some familiarity with some of their destinations. Balmas was also experienced at administering vaccines. He had been one of the foremost vaccinators in Madrid. He had also translated French physician Jacques-Louis Moreau de la Sarte's historical and practical treatise on the vaccine into Spanish. And in addition to carrying the vaccine to the Americas, this voyage would also carry Spanish-language copies of this book to distribute to health authorities while they were there. The expedition's goals were to deliver the vaccine to the Spanish colonies, to train local personnel to administer the vaccine, preserve the lymph, and keep the program going over time, and to establish a vaccine board at each stop that would keep records about who had been vaccinated. Balmas's team for the expedition included Assistant Director Jose Salvani, along with other surgeons, nurses, and practitioners. The only woman aboard was Isabel de Zendala y Gomez, who was the rectoress of the Casa de Expositos, or the Foundling House, in La Coruña, Spain. Her name is presented and spelled multiple different ways in records of the day, so there's some fuzziness there. She was the person who was ultimately responsible for the care of 22 boys between the ages of 3 and 9, four of them from the foundling house that she was the rectoress of, and the rest of them from a charity hospital in La Coruña. One of these boys was Benito Velez, who Isabel had adopted. Here are the names of the other 20 whose names we actually know, along with their ages when the voyage arrived in Mexico. Juan Francisco and Francisco Antonio, age 9. Andres Naya, age 8. Vicente Ferrer, Antonio Veredia, Candido, and Geronimo Maria, age seven. Clemente, Domingo, Nayo, Jose Manuel Maria, and Jacinto, age six. Francisco Florencio and Juan Antonio, age five. 
and Pascual Aniceto, Martin, Thomas Metiton, Jose Jorge Nicolas de la Dolores, Manuel Maria, Jose, and Vicente Marla Sale y Velido, all of whom were age three. As far as we know, all of these boys had either been orphaned or abandoned by their birth parents. And the way these foundling houses and charity hospitals worked in Spain was that abandoned or orphaned infants would be brought to them, and after they'd been sort of processed, they would be placed with a wet nurse in the community who would be paid a small stipend for her work. Older children were sometimes placed with foster families, but often they lived in poverty. For the children selected for this voyage, though, King Carlos IV promised special protection and an education at the government's expense once they arrived in Mexico, as well as employment once they were old enough to work. So in terms of what they were promised when they were starting out, it was going to be a long sea voyage, followed by a life that was supposed to be better than what they were experiencing in Spain. Originally, this voyage had been planned for a larger ship, but it ultimately took place aboard a corvette called the Maria Pita under the command of Pedro del Barco. A corvette was faster than a frigate, but its smaller size naturally presented some challenges. Over the course of the voyage, the boys were going to be vaccinated in pairs every nine or ten days, just in case one of the vaccines didn't take. But this also meant that there would always be two boys on board with an itchy cowpox blister who were living and playing with 20 other boys in very confined quarters. Since anything from scratching to rolling over in your sleep could damage the blister and roughhousing could potentially lead a child to be infected with the cowpox by accident, Isabel de Zendala had to keep a careful watch on these kids at all times. This sounds like the worst assignment on earth to me, but <laughs> praise her for doing it. Balmas immunized the first two boys in the chain using lymph from people he had previously immunized in Spain. And then the Maria Pita set sail on November 30th, 1803. They stopped first in the Canary Islands off the northwest coast of Africa to distribute the vaccine there. And then from there, they sailed for Puerto Rico, where they arrived on February 9th, 1804. This transatlantic crossing was difficult, as any transatlantic crossing was likely to be at this point. By the time they got to Puerto Rico, many of the children had developed scurvy, and one of them had actually died from it. And this is the one child whose name was not recorded when they got to Mexico, so we don't know what his name was. Balmas expected to be welcomed in Puerto Rico with excitement and relief. As we noted in Part 1, the monarch had sent instructions to all of the Spanish colonies to expect the expedition and to prepare for its arrival. But to Balmas's surprise, the vaccine had already been introduced to Puerto Rico. So like other parts of the Spanish Empire, Puerto Rico had been trying to control a smallpox outbreak. And military surgeon Francisco Oyer heard that the vaccine had already been introduced to the nearby island of St. Thomas, which at the time was part of the Danish West Indies. There are several possible ways <laughs> that the vaccine got to St. Thomas. This is one of the many rabbit holes I went down that I alluded to in part one that kept this from being just a single one-part episode. St. Thomas had been under British control in 1801 and 1802, and at that point, Britain had started vaccinating its sailors. The Danish Royal Institute for Vaccination had also sent vaccine samples to the Danish West Indies in 1802, 
And John Johnston, who was a physician, had brought the vaccine from continental North America to the island of St. Croix in 1803. It likely spread to other Caribbean islands from there. I mean, a lot of these islands are close enough together that regardless of who controlled it in terms of colonies, people went among them all the time. Regardless of which of these was the source of vaccine in St. Thomas, when Olier heard about its existence there, he asked them to send samples. The first ones he got had no effect when he tried to use them. But his second attempt worked. Even though Governor Ramon de Castro knew that the expedition was on its way, he thought that the situation in Puerto Rico was too dire to wait around for it. So he instructed Olier to start distributing the vaccine widely. However, the governor did insist that his administration do everything they could to make sure the expedition's time in Puerto Rico went smoothly to avoid ruffling any feathers for having taken this initiative. This did not work at all. Bombas took the existing uh, vaccine program in Puerto Rico really badly. A lot of colonial accounts about this expedition really described him as being arrogant and stubborn, This included writing off local health authorities as ignorant and inexperienced, even if they had already conceived and implemented an entire vaccination program on their own before he got there. In Puerto Rico, this led to a prolonged dispute in which Balmas tried to publicly undermine what Olier had done and claim that the vaccine that Olier was using was ineffective. Since Olier had already vaccinated more than 1,500 people at this point, This was a problem. Also, in the window between when the vaccine was introduced to Puerto Rico and when Balmas arrived, people had been so excited about vaccines that children literally vaccinated each other as a game. So some of Balmas's concerns about efficacy were probably pretty well-founded. So Balmas pointed out a couple of cases in which someone who Olier had vaccinated later developed smallpox or developed a cowpox sore after being re-vaccinated by someone from the expedition. It is likely this really happened because things are not 100% effective. Olier, on the other hand, noted that these were outliers and that the vast majority of people who were re-vaccinated after the expedition arrived had no reaction to that vaccine at all. So their earlier vaccine had presumably been effective. Both the governor and Olier sent lengthy correspondence back to Spain describing a lot of hostility and arrogance on Balmas's part. Overall, as you have just heard, this first stop in the Americas did not go well for the expedition. They spent four weeks in Puerto Rico, and although they administered vaccines, they did not set up a vaccine board to keep standardized records for the program. Then they faced a prolonged wait for favorable winds before they could set sail again, and it took so long that they had to seek out additional unvaccinated children to bring on board with them to keep that chain going. Even then, by the time they finally made landfall again in Venezuela, they had no unvaccinated children remaining on board, and only one cowpox sore that was ready to produce vaccine. The expedition nearly failed at this point, something Balmas squarely blamed entirely on Puerto Rico. However, the chain was not broken at this point. Balmas' team was able to vaccinate 28 children in Puerto Cabello, Venezuela, before they moved on. We'll talk about where the expedition went from there after a quick sponsor break. The 
The Royal Philanthropic Vaccine Expedition hoped to vaccinate as many people as possible, establishing tracking and record-keeping procedures that would allow vaccination programs to continue in Spain's colonies long into the future after the expedition was over. So to that end, they vaccinated people, most often children, at every city where they stopped. Often, people from outlying villages would bring a child or children to have them vaccinated and then return to continue vaccinations in the place they'd come from nine or ten days later. Or a few expedition members would carry the vaccine to a more outlying community. At various points, they also tried vaccinating cows, hoping to establish a natural reservoir of cowpox in the Americas for the future use This did not work, though. Cows. Uh, However, after they made multiple stops in Venezuela, it quickly became clear that all of this was really just too big of a job for one team. So Balmas split the expedition in half, with him directing one team and Jose Salvani directing the other. Salvani's team traveled south, farther into the continent of South America, while Balmas set sail again, this time bound for Cuba. Each had Venezuelan boys to act as vaccine hosts, and the boys who had originally set sail from Spain all remained with Balmas. Although those 22 boys are the ones most often mentioned in the context of this expedition, local children also worked as vaccine carriers after the expedition arrived in the Americas. Sometimes they were recruited from local families and then returned later on, and sometimes they were enslaved. Salvani's team had the more perilous journey after the expedition split. The South American landscape is highly varied and often extremely treacherous, and a lot of their route went through mountains and rainforests. As they vaccinated people for smallpox, they faced tropical illnesses themselves. They started out following the Magdalena River, but their ship was wrecked in what's now Colombia not long after they set sail. They were sheltered by the local indigenous people who Salvini's team vaccinated as they salvaged their ship and tried to get ready to go again. They got to Cartagena, which was then known as Cartagena de Indias, on May 24, 1804. After vaccinating at least 2,000 people, they again split into two groups, each heading in a different direction through Colombia before rendezvousing at Santa Fe de Bogota. Salvani became seriously ill during this expedition, contracting tuberculosis and losing his vision in one eye, which might have been a result of the tuberculosis, or it could have been some other infection. It's a little unclear. One of Salvani's major stumbling blocks happened when they got to Lima, Peru. It turned out that the vaccine had already made its way to Lima thanks to the Viceroy of Buenos Aires. And although this was not the first time that the expedition reached a place only to find that the vaccine was already there, it was the first time that local authorities just did not want to adopt the expedition's procedures for administration and tracking at all. Vaccinations had become a for-profit business in Lima, and local doctors didn't want to lose a potential source of their income. The expedition's procedures were only adopted after a new viceroy in Lima supported them. Salvani's leg of the expedition went on for seven years, moving through and sailing around South America before returning to Spain. Salvani did not make the return voyage home, though. He died in Bolivia in 1810. To return to Balmas in the other half of the expedition, 
He vaccinated roughly 12,000 people in Venezuela before departing for Cuba, taking four enslaved boys with him to act as vaccine hosts. And once he got there, it turned out, once again, that the vaccine had already been introduced. Medical authorities in Cuba had been trying to get the vaccine, but their intentional efforts had all failed. For example, vials of lymph that were sent from Philadelphia were unsurprisingly not effective anymore by the time they got to Cuba. But then in 1804, a woman named Doña Maria Bustamante left Puerto Rico bound for Cuba the day after her son and two maids had been vaccinated. Their vaccine sites were ready to be propagated shortly after their arrival. It was just sort of a coincidence that she wound up uh, in Cuba with ready-to-harvest vaccine as the Cuban authorities were trying to do that. Dr. Tomas Romei Chacon used the lymph to start his own vaccination campaign. So by the time Balmas arrived, thousands of people had already been vaccinated. Many of Romei's recipients were enslaved Africans who did not have the freedom to refuse it. This did not go quite as poorly as the expedition's visit to Puerto Rico had, Balmas seems to have approached the situation in Cuba with, like, less overt hostility to the local authorities. This may have been because Romay took the step of demonstrating that his vaccines had been effective by variolating his own sons, who he had vaccinated himself. They had no reaction to this exposure to smallpox. Balmas did implement the expedition's standardized process for establishing a vaccine board and for keeping records in Cuba, something he had not actually done back in Puerto Rico. After leaving Cuba, Balmas went to Mexico, arriving in Veracruz and finding, unexpectedly, that there was no one waiting to be vaccinated, because once again, a vaccination program had already been established before he got there. The Ayuntamiento, or Governing Council, had implemented a huge program complete with registration and tracking and sending vaccine delegations to outlying areas. Balmas was once again at risk of breaking his vaccine chain, but 10 men were conscripted from the garrison regiment to act as hosts. These existing vaccine programs made Balmas's time in Mexico particularly challenging. He did make arrangements for the boys who had traveled from Spain, They were to be housed in Mexico City. They were placed in the care of the bishop, and they started out living at a charitable institution that actually wasn't that much different from what they had left in Spain. They were, though, given academic and religious instruction while they were there. But most, or possibly all of them, were eventually adopted, mostly by teachers, merchants, and doctors. But when it came to administering vaccines... Balmas had a lot of trouble finding people who had not been vaccinated yet. In Mexico City, he almost lost his source again, but then the mayor brought in about 20 indigenous children and their mothers who were described as needing, quote, much persuasion. In Balmas's words, quote, some admitted that it was right, but that they could not pay, and every single one went to the apothecary demanding an antidote against the venom that had just been introduced into the arm of her child. Yeah, a lot of Balmas's expedition staff just does not seem to have taken that lesson to heart uh, that that uh, Jose Flores had talked about of like don't traumatize people while you're doing this. They seem to have taken a much heavier and more aggressive hand a lot of the time. Later on, some children from a foundling home that the expedition had vaccinated became ill, and while this illness was initially blamed on Balmas's vaccine. 
a board of doctors was convened, and he was cleared from all suspicion. On top of all these challenges, Bombas himself was very ill. He had developed dysentery and what he believed was yellow fever en route from Cuba to Mexico. Balmas continued westward through Mexico. In Oaxaca, he established vaccine boards and a plan for vaccinating the indigenous communities situated outside the city. Once he reached the western coast of Mexico, he procured a ship to continue on to the Philippines. Meanwhile, on May 16, 1804, the first smallpox vaccine was administered in Guatemala, using vaccine that had been brought from Havana. Balmas faced a series of delays when he was trying to leave Mexico. The ship that he was supposed to board was full, and he and the expedition were denied passage. Rather than waiting for another vessel, or really waiting longer for another vessel, he traveled overland to Acapulco, setting sail from there in February of 1805 aboard the Magallanes. He had a new group of 25 children on board. Most of them were children from Mexico whose parents were compensated for their participation these children were, be, were to be returned to Mexico after this leg of the expedition was over. They were once again in the care of Isabel de Zinzala y Gomez, who remained on board, even though her contract had only been for the trip to Mexico. Conditions on the Magallanes were much worse than they had been on the way to the Americas from Spain, though. They were very overcrowded. The ship was generally pretty filthy, was a situation where he he traveled to another port of departure and got a different ship because he didn't want to wait as long as he would have had to otherwise. But their accommodations were not great. And again, two dozen kids crammed into that. Yes, with two of them at a time having <laughs> a cowpox sore that has to be carefully monitored. Balmas's team vaccinated an estimated 20,000 people in the Philippines and established a vaccine board before continuing on to Macau, which is part of China today, but at that point, it was a Portuguese colony. Since this was a short trip, he needed only three children to carry the vaccine. From Macau, they traveled to other parts of China. Authorities in Canton, which was controlled by the Spanish Royal Philippine Company, refused to cooperate with the expedition. So Balmas instead took the vaccine to the British East India Company. They rounded Africa and stopped at the British island of St. Helena on the way back to Spain, where they arrived in July of 1806, having circumnavigated the globe. After this expedition, Balmas was appointed Spain's inspector general of the vaccine. Sometime around 1808 or 1809, during the Peninsular War, French forces sacked his house in Madrid, that was probably when his personal journals that detailed this expedition were lost. His personality seems to have been unchanged during this time. He expressed repeated frustrations that he was not getting enough correspondence from Salvani about his progress, which was still ongoing through South America at this point. His frustrations were in spite of the fact that warfare was slowing down the mail from South America back to Europe. He also accused Salvani of being intentionally slow in all of this, even though he was covering an enormous amount of difficult terrain during these years of the expedition. Balmas sounds real crabby. 
1809, Balmas returned to Mexico to evaluate the situation, check in on vaccine boards, reestablish lymph supplies where they had been lost, and try to find a local source of cowpox if the human-to-human chain should break again. He was still there when the Mexican War of Independence started. He got back to Spain in 1813. He was King Fernando VII's chamber surgeon, and in 1816, he was elected to the Royal Academy of Medicine. Balmas died in Madrid on February 12th, 1819, at the age of 65. We will talk about the impact and the legacy of this expedition after another quick sponsor break. In a way, the Royal Philanthropic Vaccine Expedition is one giant contradiction. Smallpox only existed in the Americas because Europeans introduced it there, either through their own bodies or through the bodies of enslaved Africans who had no choice in all of this. And this effort to control smallpox was only possible because Spain had already developed such a massive colonial administrative state with methods of communication and payment and organization all ready to go. So this expedition essentially approached a serious life-or-death problem by building on the source of that problem. It used a bureaucracy that had exploited and subjugated and in some cases forcibly converted indigenous peoples to then offer them the vaccine to an illness that they had introduced. Also, as we noted in part one, although King Carlos IV had some humanitarian goals with this expedition, Parts of it also rested on exploitation. In some places, enslavers tried to protect their investments and productivity by seeking out vaccines for their enslaved workforce, who had no autonomy over their own bodies and did not have the freedom to consent to this vaccine. And on the enslavers' part, this wasn't just about productivity. It was also about racism and the racist idea that people of African descent were dirty or were breeding disease. Over time, this idea spread to free people who were living in poverty as well, and mass vaccination campaigns targeted poor people by force. Many, many aspects of the Royal Philanthropic Vaccine Expedition would just not hold up today in terms of everything from medical ethics to vaccine safety to general human rights issues. Just focusing on those children who acted as carriers, there were 62 of them known to have participated during the course of the expedition, four of them died as a result of their involvement. Um, We didn't specifically say before the break, but those children that were supposed to be returned to Mexico were returned to Mexico. The fact that their parents had been compensated to send them on a voyage where they would act as human hosts for a vaccine, I mean, that's not a thing that would probably be done today. Fingers crossed. Uh, But at the same time... Taking all of that into consideration, this was a pretty colossal achievement. It's hard to tell just how colossal, though. Estimates of how many people the expedition directly immunized are all over the place. You'll find numbers anywhere from 100,000 to 300,000 people. But the whole point was to establish vaccine programs that would continue after the expedition had moved on. And it's hard to tell exactly how many people that affected. Even though the expedition established record-keeping procedures in most of the places it visited, many of those records have since been lost through changes in colonial administration, revolutions, and wars. 
And really, local responses to the vaccine were all over the place. Some cities and towns held parades to welcome the arrival of the vaccine, and people eagerly awaited their turn, while others practically revolted at the idea. In Oaxaca, for example, a mandatory vaccine program was ended after five years because of an uprising against it. In some places, the vaccine programs the expedition established kept going in spite of all of that, and in some cases, they lasted for decades or even more than a century. But maintaining an arm-to-arm source of a vaccine is actually really hard. You want to vaccinate everyone because you want to eliminate smallpox, but at the same time, you need enough people who aren't already vaccinated to continue to act as vaccine hosts. So in Mexico City, for example, this led to a whole process to try to ensure that 164 children every year, preferably babies, were left unvaccinated. The responsibility for selecting these children was then divided up among the different wards of the city. This just, to me, seems like failure waiting to happen. Yes. There are so many layers of not okay to this onion. On top of the complexity of keeping the chain going, a lot of people just didn't want to. Getting a smallpox vaccine this way was painful. The cowpox sore was itchy and gross, and having the lymph harvested nine or ten days later was also painful. Sometimes parents just didn't bring their children back for that second visit, or they hid their children when authorities were going house to house. There was also a lot of resistance to the vaccine in general. Some of it justified, but some of it based on intentional anti-vaccine misinformation. Compounding all of this, a lot of officials were just not good at calming the fears of anxious children and their families, and instead treated everybody who was scared as though they were ignorant and backward. Spanish health officials, whether they had been born in Spain or in the colonies, often did not approach indigenous or African people with any kind of cultural sensitivity or basic respect. So unsurprisingly, these kinds of efforts eventually broke down in most places, leading health officials to look for other sources of vaccine to start up again. Another complication involved with this was the realization that the vaccine did not confer lifetime immunity to smallpox, as people had believed it did when it was first introduced. So many places that still had vaccine programs going a couple of decades after the expedition had to adjust their procedures to re-vaccinate people as their immunity wore off. When Guatemalan doctor Jose Flores had been asked to advise on how to introduce the smallpox vaccine to the Americas, He had praised the cowpox-based vaccine as the, quote, easy and safe method to eradicate smallpox and forever liberate the inhabitants of those lands from the most frightening contagions. But obviously, although this campaign unquestionably saved lives, it did not eradicate smallpox. Although many of the vaccine programs that were implemented through this expedition tried to be thorough, it really, really takes a coordinated truly global effort to eradicate a disease entirely. The idea of herd immunity was not really articulated until the early 20th century, so long after this was over. So the idea that there was sort of a target percentage of vaccinated people who would protect everyone was just not part of all this planning. So even after the expedition, outbreaks, some of them serious, continued to happen all over the Spanish Empire. 
As one example, Spain ceded the Philippines to the United States after the Spanish-American War, and in the interest of protecting American soldiers from the disease, the U.S. Army started a vaccination program in the Philippines in 1900. Army officials reported that anywhere from a quarter to a third of the people reporting to vaccine clinics had already had smallpox. Actual smallpox, not cowpox as a vaccine. One reason was that the outlying areas relied on getting vaccine lymph from the central board in Manila, and in some places, those supplies were disrupted for years at a time. Smallpox was eradicated from South America in 1971, so that was more than 160 years after the expedition. It was declared eradicated worldwide in 1980, so today, most people don't get a smallpox vaccine. Those who do were generally in roles like being a member of the military, people who would be at the most risk of exposure in the event of a bioterror attack. Also, thanks to manufacturing and refrigeration and preservation technologies, the smallpox vaccines that exist today do not require this arm-to-arm chain of human hosts. Obviously, they are much safer than they were in the 19th century. If you'd like to read a fictionalized version of this, you can check out the novel Saving the World. That is by author Julia Alvarez. This is also the second time one of Julia Alvarez's novels has come up on the show. We also talked about her novel In the Time of the Butterflies in our episode on the Mirabal Sisters. Yeah, I read Saving the World when it very first came out. At that time, I was freelancing as a book reviewer as a side gig. Um, and that's actually where I first learned about this whole expedition because it's a, a first person, uh, not first person, it's a it's a fictional account uh, focusing um, on Isabel as one of the main characters and like her relationship with these boys who are in her care. Um, and the whole time I was reading, I was like, was, is this real? <laughs> a real human to human chain of children? That was many years ago. So um, I do not remember a lot of detail about the book, but uh, I do remember reading it. Do you got some listener mail? I do have listener mail. Uh, This listener mail is from Lucy, and it follows our Unearth Year End that came out at the very beginning of 2021. Also, before I read it, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who has sent us pictures of their knitting. I have uh, have replied to a lot of those folks to say thank you because they've been great, great pictures. Uh, But thanks to everybody who has done that. Uh, So Lucy sent this email. Lucy said, I am an avid listener of the show and always love Unearthed. This time, however, I was so excited to hear the story of the missing song from the Muppet Christmas Carol. It's my favorite Christmas movie, and I sat down to watch it on Christmas Eve this year since I was feeling a little blue because, you know, 2020. Just as When Love is Gone should have played but didn't, something in my nearly 30-year-old brain that has watched the film as many times, if not more, said, wait a minute, where's that song? I thought I was losing my mind. I was especially confused as I'd watched it on a relatively new, large, plus streaming service. Not sure if you can reference that by name. And there was no reason to cut for time on a TV broadcast. Turns out the DVD version must have made its way to that plus streaming service. Thanks for proving that I was, in fact, not imagining an entire song from the film. And thanks for everything you do on this show. I have really enjoyed it for many years. I've attached a picture of my dog, Cole, for no other reason than I know you guys typically like to receive fun pet photos. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Lucy, for the email and for the picture of Cole. Uh, We've gotten several um, sort of different variations on the same theme of the song When Love is Gone uh, from the Muppet Christmas Carol. Um, My understanding is 
that the master that they were going to reuse for, like, the 4K remaster uh, had been found, but they were not sure as of when it was reported whether it was going to be ready to actually broadcast in time for the Christmas holiday. But we've also heard from lots of people and, like, various configurations of recordings of the Muppet Christmas Carol that they have and whether they do or do not include the song When Love Is Gone. Um, I think I uh, I saw one this morning where somebody said they had both a full screen and a widescreen version, and in full screen, the song is there, but in widescreen, the song is not. Um, so anyway, that's the ongoing saga of <laughs> the missing song. Um, thank you again, Lucy, for sending this email. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com, and we are all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and the iHeartRadio app and anywhere else that get podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.